0: everybody. Hope everyone is doing good and staying healthy. I'm excited to be back with a new episode and thank you for joining me on another adventure. Please check out beyondthepandora.com for show notes and other content I post there. The goal is to do an episode per week, but realistically, I know that isn't going to happen. This will be the third episode of January of 2021, and I am happy about that. I want to feel good about the content I bring you, and sometimes I just can't get things together in a week, And honestly, sometimes I start out with an idea and halfway into writing the episode, I end up going in a completely different direction. Hopefully that's okay and it gets me to a more interesting place so that I have a better story to share with you. This episode is entitled, Superstitions or Important Things My Granny Taught Me. Growing up, my grandmother was a very prominent figure in my life. Whatever she said or did was immediately canon not to be disputed or questioned. Now, as an adult, looking back at her, I realize she was a tightly woven ball of neuroticism. Neuroticism, according to Medical News Today, is defined as a long-term tendency to be in a negative or anxious emotional state. It is not a medical condition, but a personality trait. People often confuse this with neurosis. Neuroticism is one of the traits that make up the five-factor model of personality along with extroversion, uh, which is not to be confused with olive oil, agreeability, conscientiousness, And openness. This model is used in personality evaluations and tests across a wide range of cultures. People with neuroticism tend to have more depressed moods and suffer from feelings of guilt, envy, anger, and anxiety more frequently and more severely than other individuals. They can be particularly sensitive to environmental stress. So people with neuroticism may see everyday situations as menacing or major frustrations that may be experienced. By others as trivial, may become problematic and lead to despair. Which is not surprising when you factor in where and how she grew up and the time period that she lived in. She literally grew up in the back hills of Tennessee, where she witnessed the effects of two world wars, the so called Great Depression, and she was 11 or 12 years old during the flu pandemic of 1918. She was afforded very little education. Uh, she was given a very strong religious upbringing and was married at a very early age. She saw her family go from affluence to extreme poverty and back again. So the woman was due a few interesting personality quirks. And the one for me that I remember most and with great affection is her interesting and colorful superstitions. The woman took issue with practically everything. Mirrors, birds, black dogs, whistling, the evil eye, knocking wood, (laughs) spilling salt, and something about seventh sons. And I have to admit, a few of them have stuck with me. Anyone who has listened to my podcast for a while has heard me mention my interest in the genesis points for stories, and superstitions are no different. They have to have that moment of creation, birth, genesis however you want to call it. There was a moment or occasion when the foundation for this belief was born. And I'm really curious. So let's kind of do a deep dive on some of these and see what we can find. I'm not going to be able to cover every superstition, but maybe I can hit the highlights of my granny's favorites. One of the beliefs I find most curious is the hubbub about mirrors, Why are mirrors regarded with so much foreboding? The mirror, as we know it today, was invented in Germany in 1835 by a chemist, Justus von Liebig. The process seems simple enough. Just apply a thin coating of silver paint to one side of clear glass. It doesn't sound like the process for an evil invention. Maybe that part came somewhere in the past. So... Mirror, mirror on the wall, why are you the scariest of all? Even before the invention of the actual mirror, there were many surfaces that could be used to see your reflection, albeit not as clearly as a modern mirror, but you know, in a pinch, I guess it would do. The first recorded mirrors were bowls with the interiors painted black and filled with water. The oldest actual mirror has been found in Anatolia, Turkey, and it's dated from around 6000 BCE, and it's of polished black obsidian. The ancient Egyptians made mirrors from bronze, copper, silver, and tin. They would flatten the metal into thin oval shapes and then polish them to a high sheen. They have been found in tombs and mortuary temples with ornamentation and handles. Mirrors have been found that are thousands of years old in almost every culture from around the world. And the Romans took it to the next level, as they did with most everything. And in the first century CE, after they had discovered the process of glass making, they produced glass mirrors that had metallic backing. Pieces of glass with a lead backing have been found in Roman graves from the second and third centuries. Mirrors or mirrored surfaces have been around for thousands of years, but at what point Did things go sideways and curses and bad energy get infused into them? I found an interesting blog at thehistorygirlsblogspot.com. It's very well written and researched, and I'll hit a few of the high points here, but I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can read the entire blog if you like. Okay, it says, The idea of reflection, seeing an image that may otherwise be hidden or differs from what the watcher expects, has always fascinated, whether the source be water, metal, or glass. We look for our identity in them, for good or ill. Some ancient cultures believe the reflection was the true self, the shadow soul. Hence the myth that vampires and evil spirits have no reflection. In some cultures, the images go beyond the individual. In in ancient Chinese mythology, there is a story of the mirror kingdom in which creatures who will one day rise up to battle humans are caught in a magic sleep. The flickers we sometimes see in the corners of our eyes as we look into a mirror are the creature's first stirrings. Other superstitions spanning cultures include not looking into them at candlelight when spirits of the dead might appear and covering mirrors when someone in the house dies so that the soul does not become trapped in the mirror. The deep-seated hold these superstitions have on the popular imagination is reflected in stories as far apart as Narcissus, Snow White, and the Candyman. We look, but we do not always believe or trust what we see." The idea of reflecting things that were previously hidden or unseen is a short step from looking at mirrors as a method of divination, seeing not just what is there, but what might be. One of the most common symbols carved into Pictish stones in Scotland is a mirror, usually accompanied by a comb. There are a number of theories around the symbol's meaning, including a link to a matriarchal culture, but another possibility is an association with astrology and using a mirror to read the heavens. Turning a mirror to the stars to divine messages about the future is seen in ancient Persia by shamans in Asia and is even attributed to Pythagoras who, according to legend, tipped a mirror at the moon to read the future. This practice, known as scrying, is described in a number of ancient Greek texts and sometimes involves mirrors being lowered into water on a thread to provide a double reflection. It appears to have had a number of uses, including predicting the future, medical diagnosis, and communicating with people not physically present. Practitioners would burn herbs, chant prayers, and wait for answers and messages to reveal themselves in the surfaces sometimes viewed as portals between the worlds. The practice is recorded well into the Middle Ages, and it was during the Middle Ages to the late medieval period that mirrors had a rather mixed fortune. Their role in divination made them a target for the church, and divination itself, associated as it was with demons and evil spirits, was banned. Also, during the Victorian era, it was considered bad luck for a child to see themselves in a mirror. It was believed their souls would become trapped and they would soon die. Infant and child mortality rates were horrifically high, and I guess they needed a way to try and comprehend what was happening. It seems there has always been a sense of foreboding attached to any type of mirror. Have you ever played the Bloody Mary game? No, I'm not talking about seeing how many you can drink before you fall off your chair. I'm talking about going into a dark bathroom with several of your besties and lighting a candle in front of the mirror and having everyone chant three times or 13 times, depending on what version of the legend you're practicing, the name Bloody Mary, and then waiting to see which one of you she kills first. Yeah, good times. (laughs) Oh gosh, I found an article, a very interesting article, at osu.com of all places. I'll hit the highlights and include the link in the show notes. One of the most popular urban legends is that of Bloody Mary, the spirit of a woman who can be summoned by repeating her name 13 times into a dimly lit mirror. For whatever reason, this practice has persisted across generations. In 2014, Italian researchers explored the science and psychology behind Bloody Mary, ultimately adding a bit of credibility to the legend. If this story is true, then it essentially proves witchcraft, ghosts, and an afterlife. A truly extraordinary claim. Alan Dutton writes in his article, Bloody Mary in the Mirror, that most participants are young girls of sleepovers who decide to summon Bloody Mary, or her alias, Mary Worth, as she is commonly believed to be a witch who was burned for practicing magic. Yeah, I'd be a little pissed, too, and want to come back for some retribution. So some modern iterations believe she's a young woman who died in a car accident, and some stories' specific lines need to be uttered, and in different regions, a different image is said to appear. So I guess it kind of varies from culture to culture. In concept, the whole summoning ritual should result in nothing of significance happening. However, Giovanni Caputo and his colleagues found that there is something happening that could be responsible for the urban legend. Researchers found that staring into a mirror in low light does result in seeing apparitions and distorted faces, According to findings within neuroscience, humans have a fascination with faces, being capable of finding a face within food, machinery, and household appliances. It's called pareidolia. Remember the whole sighting of Jesus in a piece of toast? Yeah, that's what it's about. It therefore makes sense that when faced with little to no stimulation, the brain attempts to find a face within a dimly lit mirror. But is that what is really happening? There's ample evidence from actual paranormal investigations when the use of a mirror has been employed to attempt to make contact with the resident spirits. There are photographs and video footage of ghostly images that appear in the mirror behind or around the reflection of the investigator. The issue that my grandmother had with mirrors was that one should not sit idly and stare at one's reflection for too long because it would make you vain. Vanity was something that she had no time for. She always said, pretty is as pretty does, not what the mirror shows you. But I do remember mirrors being covered when a person was sick or when someone had died. And, if heaven forbid, a mirror was broken, it was taken into the forest and buried at night on the night of the same day it was broken. I know, right? Another of her chief complaints were birds. I remember once when I was four or five years old, it was early spring, and all the rugs had to be carried out and hung on the clothesline to be cleaned, and the screen door was left propped open and a bird got inside the house. The bird was subdued and removed very quickly, and she immediately went through the whole house throwing salt. Throwing salt is where you literally stand in the center of a room, and as you turn, you cast salt out around you to where it goes down the four walls and in the corners. And then you, you leave it there for a few hours or overnight, and then you sweep it up. And I, I mostly remember it being swept up and put into an ash can. This may have been a regular part of spring cleaning, but I don't remember it ever happening again after that. I just remember it happening with association when it had something to do with the bird getting in the house. Birds have always been seen as omens, and I found an article at worldbirds.org that breaks down some of the bird lore. There's actually incredible symbolism of birds in various religions and different cultures around the world. There's some very interesting ones from the Middle East and Asia. The meanings of birds and their symbolism varies greatly from representing immortality, departed souls, and spirit messengers to representing fertility, protection, and strength, like um, a crane, uh, Sandhill's crane, any kind of a crane, means blessings, peace, and good luck. Eagles stand for courage, rebirth, and power. A swan is light, twin flame, purity. A sparrow means productivity, diligence, creativity. A peacock is serenity, spring, and, and vanity. Uh, my granny would not have liked the peacock. As I do recall, I don't think she really cared for peacocks. She thought they were kind of loud and sassy. Hummingbirds mean joy, love, and healing. Falcons mean longevity, victory, nobility. But the one I find most curious is the owl. I have recently started a book on Audible called The Messengers, Owls, Synchronicity, and the UFO Abductee. And it's by Mike Cleland. There seems to be some connection to owls and the alien abduction phenomenon, where people remember seeing owls instead of alien beings. Willie Strieber also writes extensively about this. Owls are mysterious and they are birds of prey, so maybe as humans we're picking up on the predator energy? I don't know, but I do have to say that even I have some weird things going on with owls. There's one hanging around my house and I live in a rather congested neighborhood and it sits on a roof ridge of a house behind ours and it stares at me in the early evenings when I'm outside and it's enormous. I think it may be a an owl and it's absolutely gorgeous you know, all birds are fascinating creatures. Anything that can fly has always seemed magical because they live in the in-between of the worlds. They can travel to the heavens and return with messages from the gods. But it seemed that for my grandmother, she saw them as a harbinger of doom, as a death portent, and getting one in our house was a message that a death in the family would soon follow. Earlier, I mentioned how my grandmother had thrown salt when the bird got in the house. The whole salt thing has always fascinated me. How many of you have seen someone spill salt and then gather a bit of it in their right hand and then toss it over their left shoulder? Even when cooking, I measure salt into the palm of my left hand and I always take the last bit in my right hand and toss it over my left shoulder. I don't even know why I do it. It's just something that has always been and I don't even question it. But one of the stories that could influence this behavior is that during the last supper, Judas Iscariot knocked over the salt cellar, which is a small container of salt. And of course, if the stories are true, Judas was cursed when he decided to betray Jesus to the Romans. And anything that he might have done is not to be repeated. Even though I'm not religious, the behavior has been ingrained in me. Very early in human civilization, salt was incredibly expensive, so to spill it was like throwing away money but taking a bit of what was spilled and tossing it in the devil's face was a way of chasing off the devil and resetting the energy in your favor because it is believed the devil sits on your left shoulder. But I'm sure there are many variations out there of the origins of the spilled salt curse. I personally have always used salt to clear and clean energy in my home. I have small ornate bowls with a couple of tablespoons of pink rock salt sitting around my house. I put them near exterior doors and windows to capture any negative energy that may be trying to find a way inside, which kind of segues into another of my granny's favorite taboos, the evil eye. She believed one should never be too flashy. Never do anything to capture the envy of another person. And it was okay to be prosperous as long as you didn't flaunt it. She believed that hard work was itself a virtue and a reward, and that if you were seen working hard, then people wouldn't envy you and invite the curses attached to the evil eye. Typically, if you were envied for something, then a tragedy or catastrophe would occur to make you lose whatever was envied compliments were discouraged. If someone complimented something you owned, you immediately said something to disparage it. Like, that is one nice cow, Miss Jackson. And her reply would be something like, that old thing? It's useless and draws flies. Miss Jackson, those are some mighty fine roses you got there. Uh, They worthless and just an eyesore. I may cut them down next week. And don't ever compliment one of her children or grandchildren. Oh, don't go saying nice things about them. They're worthless and lazy. They're not worth a lick. But in private, she was always doting and very loving. But she didn't want you to be vain or to draw too much attention to yourself. The evil eye is a superstitious curse or legend originating in ancient Greece and Rome. And it's believed to be cast by a malvolent glare, like somebody glaring at you. And it's usually given to someone when they're completely unaware of what's happening. Many cultures believe that receiving the evil eye will cause misfortune or injury, while others believe it to be a kind of a supernatural force that casts and reflects a malevolent gaze back upon those who wish harm to others, especially if it's an innocent person like a child or a baby. Talismans and amulets created to protect against the evil eye are also frequently called evil eyes. In the Mediterranean, in approximately 1500 BC, evil eye beads popularized with the Phoenicians, the Greeks, and the Romans and the Ottomans are found in graves and in ruins all through that area. And they're still very popular and in use today. I own several of them. The idea expressed by the term causes many different cultures to pursue protective measures against it. With around 40% of the world's population believing in the evil eye, it is especially prominent in the Mediterranean and Western Asia. The idea appears multiple times in the Jewish rabbinic literature, and it was widely Extended belief among many Mediterranean and Asian tribes and cultures, charms and decorations with eye-like symbols known as nazars, which are used to repel the evil eye, are a common sight. The, all across Cyprus, Greece, Albania, Portugal, Brazil, Israel, Ethiopia, Georgia, Armenia... Turkey, Palestine, Egypt, and even in South America, Mexico, Malta, Montenegro, Spain, Romania. I mean, that whole area. And they have become a very popular choice and and a souvenir even with tourists. So you go into those areas and you find in all these little shops, these little round things that look like an eyeball and they're usually blue and white. You've also probably seen the pretty... Um, they're called hamsas, and they look like a uh, the palm of a hand. And they usually have uh, like little symbols on them. And in the center of them is an eye. It's really interesting. My son has a hamsa tattooed on his arm, just below the, the bend of his arm, uh, right below the elbow area. And, and it's absolutely gorgeous. In Italy, they use these little charms that look like twisty horns. And in Egypt, they use the eye of Horus, which is, you know, the the stylized eye. And all of these talismans specifically protects against the malvolent gaze, that gaze of the evil eye. And this belief in the evil eye dates back to around the 8th century BCE in Greece. And then it's found in the Mediterranean around the 3rd century BCE. This is an ancient superstition. Perhaps it helped people to explain and understand the terrible things that happened to them and around them. And by creating specific protections and remedies, it gave them a feeling of being in control of something that otherwise was beyond their scope of understanding and influence. But I do have to admit having some very interesting things happen when I have used these NASARs. Um, I have them in my vehicles. I have them strategically placed around my home and on my property and even in my wallet. I learned a long time ago that there are people out there who are indiscriminate with their thoughts and I don't need their influence affecting my life. One of the exercises that I do during healing meditations, and I do these several times a week, I'll call in my spirit guides and ask them to remove any etheric courting and cancel out soul contracts that have a negative connotation or lead to a, a negative outcome scenario. Both of these things are extremely easy to create, and they can really mess things up if you're not vigilant. Etheric courting be, can be created by just thinking about someone, and a soul contract can be created by an unguarded word. And I believe you can never be too careful, and evidently neither did my granny. She did not trust men that whistled, I guess due to the old belief that whistling was akin to calling the devil. And she probably didn't like it also because the person was drawing attention to themselves. She was constantly knocking wood when something was said that she didn't want to come to pass or knocking wood, you know, for good luck. And as a joke, she would lightly wrap her knuckles on the top of my head as if my head were made of wood. My granny was a tough bird who lived through some very rough times and was a product of her environment. Or is there something to the superstitions? I've only covered a few of them here. There are thousands of them out there. Something for every occasion. I know human thought can be corrosive, like acid, and it can be incredibly healing. When thought is coupled with word and deed, a trinity of great power and influence can be created. This trinity is used for ill and for good with practically every thought. There are beings called tulpas that are created by thought, and there are experiments that have been done where the nature of a haunting can be influenced by what is said about the location. Florence Scovel Shin once wrote that the thoughts are the scissors of the mind that are constantly creating and recreating the circumstances of our lives. I work very hard to guard my and guide my thoughts. And I spend a great deal of my time in what I call prayer. But it's not of the religious variety. It is a kind structured in such a way to clean and clear negative energy from all areas of my life and, and from any life that touches mine in any way. I believe there is something to the whole evil eye thing. Throwing spilled salt over your left shoulder can't hurt. No one wants to see a broken mirror, and let's give poor Mary Worth a rest. And while we're at it, let's knock wood and avoid any run-in with pesky birds, and watch out for those owls. Everyone knows they are not what they seem. All right, so this is this week's episode on superstitions. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and you will come back and visit me again soon when I get the new episode (laughs) up and going. But until then, blessings, my friend. Thank you. I I wish you peace. Uh, Stay curious. Be safe. Question everybody and everything. And we will talk again soon.